Reading your Bible, praying, finding time to be alone with God does not make you more acceptable to God, nor do those practices change you. Rather, it is where change happens, as we come to meet with our Father and connect with His heart. Our teacher on this important subject is author and speaker Preston Gillum of Fort Worth, Texas, when he spoke at the Christ's Life Conference hosted by Crossways to Life. May Father use this message to deepen your walk with Him. It's always nice to get out of Fort Worth this time of year and get someplace where it's cool. So, over the weekend it was uh, 91 degrees at home, so what is that, about 30 here or so? 31, 2, something like that. Anyway, but I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me, and um, I'm looking forward to this. I was telling uh, Ross yesterday, as well as Don and Miriam, that um, I've not ever gotten to speak on this subject that we're going to visit this week, so I'm as excited about this week as you probably are, if not more so, because I get to do it, I guess. But uh, but anyway, I'm I'm really excited about the opportunity that I have to share with you. We're going to, um, e- each night will kind of stand on its own, so if you can't come back tomorrow, that's you're not going to, to miss a great deal. But there is a sequence to this. There's a journey involved, because as I began to talk with uh, Ross about the hopes and dreams of this conference, the idea was that, as he's already stated, we would go into some of the practicalities of Christian living. Spiritual development, spiritual formation is uh, one of the buzzwords right now in, uh, in the Christian world about spiritual growth. And I think it's a, a very appropriate subject for us to address because uh, so often we come to the faith and we understand some of the central truths of it, uh, certainly the message of the exchanged life, which has brought many of you here, which is central to us really understanding what has happened to us as a result of, of coming to know Christ as not only as our Savior, but also as our Lord in our life. But what then? You know, What do you do now? Uh, what does it look like to actually grow in your faith, get to where you have a relationship with your Heavenly Father that is a vibrant uh, kind of a relationship? What does it mean that He is your Father and that Jesus Christ is portrayed throughout the Scriptures, your older brother, and that there is this close affinity that you have to the Holy Spirit who lives in you? What, what does that matter and what does it mean for us? And so as I considered the subject, I thought, you know, what, what more could I offer than just kind of a personal journey? And so that's what this week will be about. It will be a, a journey this evening, uh, beginning with my personal story, to just tell you what my view of uh, God was and how God worked in my life uh, with regard to um, how I viewed him, and uh, and so on. Much of uh, that, as you will see, was rooted in in the belief that I could do something for God, that I could bring something to the table that would enhance His viewpoint of me. And I uh, I want to speak candidly about that, and then I want to try to articulate for you during the second session the 
the, the twist, the nuance that, that began to occur in my heart and in my mind that um, took the disciplines that I had, had uh, brought into my Christian life and turned them into personal disciplines that um, moved me down the road of, of spiritual growth. Tomorrow night, then, I'll spend both sessions talking about a personal God. Then on Thursday night, we will begin the uh, subject of personal prayer, and uh, that is a discussion with, with God, talking with him, him with us. We'll spend our two sessions on Thursday night on that subject and the first session on Friday night as well. And then we will conclude Friday night with a subject that I've called personal retreat. For over 20 years, I have gone away for a period of time each year in a, in a focused time of retreat. And it's been an incredibly rich time for me personally. And so I thought, well, I will uh, tell you my secret formula on Friday night. But anyway, tonight I want to begin with uh, some of my story and um, walk you through some of the realities of how I have uh, developed as a believer, um, thinking that if I do so, you will be able to pick up some tips and so on along the way that might be of, of benefit to you. You know, the the theological idea of being blessed by God, I think encapsulates everything that we really believe as far as our, our Christian faith is concerned. There's a passage of scripture found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, that speaks to this. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. When I read this passage of scripture and consider this concept of being blessed with every spiritual blessing that is in the heavenly places, I first of all see that God has given us an inheritance. It is an inheritance whereby he takes us into not only his life, but into his family. He makes us one of his own. He says that the inheritance that is um, bequeathed from him to Jesus Christ is the same inheritance that he has given to us, such that we have become joint heirs with not only each other, but also with Jesus Christ himself. In his choosing of us, we have the great doctrine of redemption. That is that God uh, gave one son in order that he could redeem and have another son, me. Uh, he gave one so that he could have another. What an amazing concept. Only God would try this on us. And yet that is in this passage of scripture. He considered all that was before him that would be an impediment between himself 
and me, between himself and us. And in Christ, through the work of Jesus Christ, he has provided forgiveness for everything that stood in the way between us. He's removed everything and opened the way without impediment so that we can connect with God and communicate with him and bond with him at a deep kind of a level. Through his adoption of us, he has given us security in Christ Jesus. Whether believing or unbelieving, the people who study humankind tell us that security is one of the central components of our well-being as people. Our Heavenly Father, who designed us, who built us, who wired us, understands this. And so in this passage about blessing, one of the central things that he wants us to be sure that we get is that we are secure in Christ Jesus. And finally then, he speaks of grace, and it says that he freely bestowed this on us in Christ Jesus. In other words, he has lavished grace upon us. Malcolm Smith gives the image of what it means to be blessed by God. While I have just been talking about theological concepts, the physical image of those theological concepts is this. The act of being blessed by God is that God opens his arms, he pulls us close to himself, wraps his arms around us, and kisses us on the head. That's what it means to be blessed by God. Quite literally. And so when it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, it is all of those great theological concepts that I just raced over, but it is the physical embrace of God pulling us close, whispering in our ear about all that he has blessed us with, and kissing us on the head. The three concepts that will be repeated as I go through the course of this week are grace, trust, and heart. Grace, trust, and heart. They are central to this idea of being blessed by God. Grace is, uh, here's my definition of grace. It is the determination on the part of God to share his heart with us. It is the determination on the part of God to share his heart with us. Again, it is a posture. And the posture of God in grace is of him leaning toward us. Grace is God leaning toward us. In history, it is the person of Jesus Christ when God leaned toward us, mankind, he did so in the person of Jesus, who is the personification of grace. Oftentimes, when we get into circles like we're in in this room, we think of grace as a concept, kind of a theological tenet, if you will, to, to be grasped. And that's true, but at a deeper level, I think in the mind of God, grace is not so much an idea as it is a person. It is the person of Jesus. And the posture, again, is of God leaning toward us. And then there's the idea of trust. Uh, I'll, talk, I'll talk a great deal about trust before this first session is out, but in a nutshell, the definition of trust is 
This, that you will not begin to trust God until your faith in God has been challenged. You will not begin to trust God until your belief about God, that is your faith in him, has been challenged. In other words, we come to a point of trust when it appears as though our belief is misplaced. In other words, trust says, I will continue to believe in you. I will continue to have confidence in you, even though circumstantially it seems as though I would be a fool to do so. The posture of trust is of us leaning toward God. In other words, even when it appears as though we should actually take a step back or keep him at arm's length. So grace, the posture of grace, is God leaning toward us. The posture of our trust is us leaning toward God. And then there's the idea of heart. The idea of heart. Heart is conveyed, first of all, in God in a great theme that runs all the way through the scripture, and it is the theme of covenant. And uh, covenant, as far as God's thinking is concerned, is conveyed in the Old Testament in two words, mercy and loving kindness. Anytime you see those two words in the Old Testament, mercy and loving kindness, you know that that particular verse of Scripture is talking about God's determination, his vow, that is, to make us part of his life through the agreement that he made with Jesus Christ. It's called a blood covenant. And it is conveyed in the Old Testament in the two words mercy and loving kindness. In the New Testament, God's covenant is conveyed primarily in the term grace. Primarily in the term grace. But it is the heart of God to be loving uh, merciful, gracious, filled with loving kindness. And so when you read in the Old Testament and it says, um, your mercies are new every morning, what uh, the psalmist is saying is that the covenant of God is fresh to me every day when I, cons- when I consider it. Your loving kindnesses never fail. In other words, your covenant with uh, uh, dear God, through through this blood covenant, your loving kindness can never fail. It can never come to an end. So God's heart is one of faithfulness. Then there is uh, our heart. And I think our heart is conveyed in that part of what has happened to us when we become believers is that we have a new heart. Um, Hebrews chapter 10 speaks of this. says that our hearts have been washed clean. What it means then is that there is a capacity inside of us to respond to God. Prior to the redemptive work of Christ in our lives, we were inherently rebellious toward God. We wanted nothing more than to be independent of him. But through the transforming work, that occurred through Christ, not only did we 
gain a new identity. Not only do we get a new heritage, not only do we have a new future that is, uh, is ours in Christ, but inside we are remade. Inside, we have a capacity now to respond to God that wasn't there prior to our salvation. I think of that as heart. It is the desire in me to want to know God. So, grace is God leaning toward man in Christ. Trust is mankind leaning toward God. Heart, then, is the connection point between the two. It is the bond that happens. In other words, the heart of God bonds to my new heart, and my new heart bonds to the heart of God such that there is a connection that is inseparable. It is inseparable theologically, it is inseparable physically, it is inseparable solically, because it is a bond that is conceived in the genius of God and is rooted in grace, trust, covenant, the redemptive work of Christ that is, you know, part of what is the theology that you've understood that has brought you here this evening. And so the blessing of God then means that when we are pulled close, when we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, when we are kissed on the forehead by God, when we are the recipients of grace, that is, the person of Jesus Christ, and when in trust we learn to lean into, to depend upon our Heavenly Father. There is a spiritual magic that happens inside of us that connects us to our Heavenly Father in an inseparable bond. Such that we read in the Scriptures that says, there is nothing that can separate us from Him. Nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Not anything that's high, not anything that's low, not anything that's broad or deep or vile or anything else can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. It took me a long time to realize that I was blessed by God. Uh, I fought it desperately. I don't know why, but I did. One of the things that I will talk to you about over the course of these evenings is I will, I will talk about journaling and I will talk about the idea of a personal retreat and I'll try to describe to you the, the way that my personal journals play out in my times of personal retreat such that I, I believe that I capture more of what it is that, uh, our Heavenly Father is saying to me over the course of, of time and so on and, Anyway, I went back um, in my journals because I remembered the, the personal retreat where I had gone and God finally broke through and spoke to me in words that I could get about what it means to be blessed by him and the response and the determination from me to then lean into and believe what God had said. Some of what I will share will be Pretty personal, I, I trust that's okay. I intend it to be that way so that you can hopefully get the idea of what it means to grow and have relationship with your Heavenly Father. Each of my journals begins the same way with a date and a location. 
November the 14th, 2005, 8.35 a.m., the Lazy H Ranch in South Arkansas. It dawns on me that I have been looking for and expecting others to bless me and anoint me when Father already has. I must refocus and, Father, listen to what you have in mind with your blessing of me. Because your blessing of me was not worded as I wished, I have continued to look for a blessing conceived in my own imagination and vision. I'm sorry. You have boldly and graciously and grandly given me the same blessing you gave my older brother, Jesus Christ. What more can I do than simply receive? Thank you and trust the Spirit's power to live as you intend and dream, to live in the same fashion as my older brother. You know my heart, and truth be known, I know my heart on this matter now that we're discussing it. I want what you want. This week, speaking of this week of personal retreat, this week, this week I want to begin again at the point of your blessing. I want to embrace your blessing of me. I want to believe to believe deeply enough that it will root out my arrogance and desperation conceived in lack and fertilized with bitterness, resentment, envy, and jealousy. I want to live upon the broad plane of your vision and within the safe confines of your great heart for me. There, I want to run free and roam as an explorer of all that you are and are interested in considering and pursuing. I want in that expanse to set off upon a great adventure conceived by you, Honored that as your friend and beloved son, I am invited to join you. Father, at least for the moment, I get it. I have missed it to this point, but like a healed blind man, I see now what you see and do not ever want to return to my blindness, groveling for a small blessing when you have blessed me with wild abundance beyond all I could imagine or even ask. I don't understand all that you are thinking, but I think that is part of what our adventure together will reveal. To the best of my ability, I'm listening. I'm clear about this. I am blessed by my Father. I need, wish, want, must embrace this if I am ever to escape the wretchedness of my bitter, jealous, envious resentment. I know who I am. I want more of Father than what mankind can facilitate or assimilate or tolerate. Therein is his blessing. I would rather embark upon the great adventure Father envisions for us than live within the safety of man's blessing and vision for me. Knowing he and I have traveled and trekked through the expanse of his heart's desire is what my heart longs to do. End of the journal entry. And then I spent that week thinking about what it meant to be blessed by God. But you know, it wasn't always that way. As you picked up in between the lines of that, of that journal entry, uh, there has been a struggle to believe, a struggle with God himself, a struggle with blessing, a struggle uh, to trust. Let me take you back um, several years and kind of give you a concept of what my belief about God was. 
I basically had a theology that was rooted in two passages of Scripture. The first was Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, which basically says that um, everything that uh, comes into our lives uh, comes there for a purpose, and the purpose is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And then the second passage of Scripture was 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, and that passage of Scripture says that there is um, nothing in the way of temptation or difficulty and so on that will come into our lives that is so severe that we will not be able to endure that. But with the endurance, we will discover that God will provide a way for us to escape from whatever that, uh, that stress is. I put those two passages of Scripture together somehow in, in some great theological construct, uh, but anyway, I put those two passages of scriptures together and what I wound up with theologically was this, that God, out of his great love for me, was going to see to it that I received the toughest course possible, all things, uh, as the Bible would call it, and that God would hold me under this pressure, this stress, until I reached that fraction of a moment when I, when I was almost ready to break, and then he would free me from that difficult situation, uh, being therefore more conformed to Christ, more convinced of his love, and more aware of what it meant to have character as a Christian and so on. The bottom line for me was that I saw God as kind of an older brother treating me as a younger brother uh, out in the backyard, you know, tackles me, grabs me, holds me down, presses my face into a, in a, into a pile of dog mess, and keeps my nose there in that until I cry uncle. And then when I cry uncle, then he lets me up at the last minute. That was my concept of God. Hard to uh, have any any um, real belief that God is a God of love or that God has my best interest at heart. And so I um, I set up on a course then to try to behave well so that God would be pleased with me and would stay out of my life, basically. Because uh, he only showed up when there was something that needed to be fixed in my life. So if there's nothing to fix, then why would he show up? Um, when he did show up, though, that was not a happy day. Um, my belief about God can be portrayed this way, like a, um, like a baseball stadium. Um, the goal for me was basically to live in the infield, inside the bases. I figured that was safe. As long as you were inside the bases, God didn't have anything uh, that he could beef about with you. It was when you got outside the bases that you were in trouble. And so my life's philosophy was basically to stay inside the bases and do the laps and so on, do what was right, and if God should show up, then I had a good defense to say, hey, there are a lot of people doing worse than I am, so go deal with them. I'm doing fine staying in here in the bases. You go deal with somebody else. I'll stay put right here. And then every once in a while, 
I would find that I just fouled up royally. And in my way of thinking, that was I would find myself out in the left field bleachers, uh, completely outside the playing field, out there in the cheap seats where they drink warm beer. And there I would come to my senses and I would realize, "Uh uh-oh, I have fouled up. And when I would turn around then and look back toward the infield, I would see God. And God would be standing with his hands on his hips, his toes right up against the outfield grass. And the clear implication was he expected me to get out of the left field bleachers and to make my way across the outfield back to him. And when I got there, my image of what would transpire is this, that as I approached, when I got close enough, he would spit on the ground and say, damn it, press. And then turn around and walk. And I was supposed to follow. And that was what it meant to me to walk with God. There are a lot of things, I think, that God could have done to, uh, to fix this problem. But... Um, The wisdom that he possesses never ceases to amaze me with how he uh, began to approach me when I was so unapproachable. Longfellow says, The holiest of holidays are those kept by ourselves in silence and apart, the secret anniversaries of the heart. Let me share some anniversaries with you. Summer. 1981. I won't give you the details. It's not important. But I heard God say something to me. And he said, trust me. Trust me. Lean into me. Now, for a guy who had an opinion of God like the one I just described, hearing God say, hey, lean into me. Trust me. I'm saying, you know what? I don't trust you any farther than I can throw you. You're the last person in the world that I want to trust. But heard him say it. Heard him say it. That fall, I was delivering a lecture at a private school in uh, a suburb of Nashville, Tennessee, called Brentwood Academy, speaking to a bunch of high school students. And I don't remember the subject. Uh, It was a question and answer. The subject isn't important. But for whatever reason, I turned around and wrote on the whiteboard the definition of trust I gave to you just a moment ago. You will never learn to trust God until your faith in God has been challenged. And as I began to write those words, I forgot about the class behind me. I knew that I was writing something on that whiteboard for myself. And it was a message from God. You will never learn to trust me until your faith, your confidence in me has been challenged. And all my faith and confidence in God had been challenged, been challenged mightily. You know, I never feared that God, uh, that I would, would fall into a pattern of believing that God didn't exist. But what I believed about God scared me to death. March 19th. 1982, just uh, six months after that experience that I was describing to you in Nashville, I 
I got up from the lunch table. Uh, nothing fancy, just stood up from the lunch table. And pain began in my back. Went uh, from my tailbone all the way up to my head. Uh, spasms, it bent me into a capital S. Uh, when you looked at me, when I would look at myself in the mirror, when I got out of the shower, I looked like an S. I couldn't breathe. The spasms uh, prevented my, my lungs from working, so I was just gasping for air. The pain was excruciating. Just excruciating. That was March the 19th, 1982. It's been there ever since. 24-7, 365 days out of the year, that pain has been there. I've been to everybody who was, who is anybody and a lot of folks who aren't somebody. You know? If you uh, have ever had an experience like this, you know what it's like to try to find a solution for a chronic issue um, like pain. Been to all the doctors, been to all the different folks, um, and you know what? It, uh, like I said, it, it all turned out to no avail, in a sense. There's been no relief, per se. And in the uh, framework of that pain, my viewpoint of God early on was that he was my antagonist. He was the one that was bringing this about. Um, I thought of him with a Spanish term, el gato, the cat. The cat. You ever seen a cat? play with its prey. And I felt like that's what God was doing to me. He was El Gato. He was my he was my antagonist. He wasn't my father. He wasn't anyone I wanted to be close to at all. He had brought this to me. It was part of that tough course to build into me the character of Christ. And I resented it. I resented it. It took about two years for me to work my way through all of my resources, to go to all of the doctors, to do everything that I knew to do spiritually. I confessed stuff that I had never even done before, trying to cover all the bases, you know, of, of, of you know, confession of sin. I fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, you know, I sought counsel. I read books. I stood on my head in the corner. I did anything I could think of to try to get out of this pain. And uh, toward the end of that two-year period, God began to uh, say to me, Press, I'd like for you to read the book of Job. And I would uh, say to him, No, I'm not going to read the book of Job. And it would be the end of the subject. And then he would bring the subject up again. Press, I'd like for you to read the book of Job. No, not going to read the book of Job. And um, anyway, one day I was living in a, a little house on Bill Glade Road over in Fort Worth and was out mowing the grass. And uh, right in the dead center of the front yard, God brought up the subject again and said, Press, I'd like for you to read the book of Job. And I said to him, I said, look, you don't understand. I have read the book of Job before. I know what's in there. Job is, is doing everything right. He's a good man. He's looking after his family. 
The Bible says that he was confessing not only his own sins, but he was even confessing the sins of his sons. He was making sacrifice not only for himself, but he was making sacrifices just in case there was any sin anywhere. The devil had, you know, Job was nowhere on the devil's radar screen, but you bring up his name. And when you bring up his name, then the devil turns on Job and bad things happen. And you open up your hedge of protection and you let this happen to this good man. And eventually, you let everything go wrong. His health is broken. He's sitting on a, on a dump, scraping sores on his body with a pot shard. His wife is telling him, curse God and die, man. His friends have forsaken him because of his sorry estate. And this goes on for 30 some odd chapters. And finally, when he's had all he can stand, you show up and tell him what a great God you are. You hold his nose in it until he acknowledges you. I'm not going to read that book. I have read it before. And I don't like the way it goes. And God said, Press, I want you to read the book. And I stopped in the middle of the yard and I said, Okay, I'll read the book. But I am not responsible for what happens between you and me. I'm sure he was greatly relieved to know that. <clears throat> I finished the yard, went in, showered, Went, sat down at my desk, pulled out a, uh, a yellow pad, opened up my Bible to the book of Job, and I began to paraphrase as I read. Paraphrase the whole book in longhand. And you know what? I began to see myself in the pages of Job. I began to see a different picture of who God is. I began to see a man who was not only doing everything right, but he was doing everything right in the arrogance arrogance of his own way. Trying to prove to God that he was worthy. Trying to prove to God that he was somebody. Trying to say, God, if you will just come down here and argue with me, then you will see that I have the capacity to justify myself. And God in his, as Lewis calls it, his divine humility, continued the dialogue with Job. And finally, at the end of the book, there's a verse of scripture that caught me. And the verse of scripture is when Job says, you know what? God All of my life, I've heard about you. But now then, I see you. Now then, I see you. Closed the book. Put my yellow pad away. Got up from my desk with a different concept of who God was. I think that was the turning point when God became my God. He had always been this adversary, El Gato. But he became my God at that point in time.
April 1987, so five years later. Um, it was Easter Sunday, and I was driving down a residential street in Fort Worth. It was early in the morning, um, trying to hurry, get whatever I was doing done so that I could get back and get cleaned up, you know, get dressed for Easter and go to church and so on. And so I'm driving down this uh, residential street, following another car, and a squirrel uh, ran across the street in front of the car that was in front of me, and the squirrel didn't make it. The car hit it. And I saw all of this. And um, so I dodged the squirrel then glanced in my rearview mirror, and I could see the squirrel struggling to try to get out of the street. So I backed up parked my car, drove a 1971 orange Volkswagen Bug in those days, parked the car, jumped out, went over where this squirrel was, and he clearly was hurt badly. Uh, back end was broken and uh, bleeding internally, you know, blood coming out of his mouth and so on. And, and so I, I didn't know what to do, but I said, well, I can't leave this squirrel here. And so I, I reached down and I picked the squirrel up in my hands and went over to um, a yard and I, I knelt down in the yard then and, you know, set the squirrel down. Meanwhile, his claws had dug into my forearms. And so my forearms now are, are bleeding where this squirrel has punctured punctured me with his claws and I, I set him down and in the grass and I I'm staring at him and his little black eyes are, are glassy and they're staring back at me in terror as this godlike figure is hovering over him in his destitute and dangerous state um, after having been hit. And I can see that in his eyes is terror. Um, and in my heart, I know that my intention toward the squirrel is to try to do something to help him in his, in his predicament. I know my heart, and yet I can see into his eyes. And then the squirrel began to drag himself away from me, to escape me, and to head for some bushes, uh, you know, a few feet away. And... I knew then that that would mean that he'd have a certain appointment with the cat, you know, who would do, do him in finally. And as I looked into this squirrel's eyes and watched him try to escape me, all of a sudden the tables turned and I was the squirrel and God was me. And I was able to see into God's heart because I knew my heart toward that squirrel. I saw that while I viewed God with fear and terror and resentment and hatred, in a sense, for his hoveringness, if there is such a word, in my life, and I had been doing everything I could to pull myself and drag myself away from him, I could see for the first time into his heart and knew that his heart was one of deep compassion and love for me. 
My world shifted on its axis that Easter morning, April 1987. God became my father because I understood his heart for me. When I get to heaven one of these days, I'm going to be the guy with a squirrel. He's going to, because that squirrel paid a heck of a price to teach me that lesson, you know? Um, less than one month later, my wife, uh, Rebecca, came to me. It um, was our fifth anniversary. She was graduating from nursing school, uh, which I had put her through. And uh, so it was our anniversary. It was also the day that she would walk the stage and get her diploma and um, had a job lined up, her dream job, actually, in one of the hospitals in Fort Worth uh, with her uh, freshly minted Bachelor of, of Nursing degree. And um, she came to me and she said, um, she said, Press, I need to talk to you. Okay. And she said, um, you are um, a good husband. You're a godly man. But I don't want to live with you anymore. Um, I'm leaving after I walk the stage today. And I'm going to get a divorce. And you know what? She did. She did. Uh, my world uh, descended into a deep darkness, a desperation, in a sense. Um, professionally, I was ruined. Um, economically, I was uh, pretty close to ruined. Our house was no longer fit to live in after she took, quote, her things, end quote. Um, she took the new car uh, and so on. I was left with... Um, my camping gear, which is what I used to cook and live out of, and my dog. And I was left with my father. I cannot imagine what would have happened had the tables been reversed and she had left in April and the squirrel event had happened in May. In God's providence, in his timing, he knew that I needed the squirrel event in April in preparation for what was happening in May. For a guy who wouldn't trust God any further than he could throw him, come May 1987, the ultimate test of my life occurred. And you know what? I knew then, and I can tell you now, God is trustworthy. He is everything that he's chalked up to be. You know, I uh, weigh 165 pounds today. By the time I eventually, you know, rebounded from Becky's leaving, I weighed 121 pounds. Um, I could not keep a pair of pants on unless they had elastic in them. It was a tough deal. I mean, it really was a tough deal. I fished every night until I wore the chrome off of the snake guides on my fly rod. I uh, wandered the woods in the night, the bush, as you call it, up here. The verse of scripture that says that all creation groans longing for the revelation of the sons of God. 
I would go uh, to the trees in the woods, uh, the live oak trees, which are a real gnarly uh, tree, heavily barked type tree that we have in Texas. And I would wrap my arms around those trees and I would mash my face into them until my face bled. And I would say to them, are you pulling for me? Are you pulling for me? Are you longing for my revelation as a child of God? Whatever that means. It was a tough time. It was a very difficult time. I wrote in my journal at one point, two is divided neatly. One is torn. When you become a husband and wife, you are bonded. You're connected. You don't separate those nicely. You tear them apart. A couple of passages of Scripture began to be very meaningful to me. Psalm chapter 18 verse 11 says that God made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters and thick clouds of the skies. I had always been taught that God dwelt in unapproachable light, and I think he does. But there are other passages of scripture that says that God lives in deep darkness. Isaiah 45, 3, I will give you, listen to this, the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. When I would wander in the woods in that deep darkness, when nothing but my dog and the coyotes, I could hear my name called. It was my Heavenly Father calling to me out of that deep darkness. And in that deep darkness, in retrospect, I see that he shared his treasures, the treasures of his hidden wealth, things that you can only hear in a place where there is nothing left to bring to him except your broken soul, your destitute dreams. God was faithful. By leaning into him, I found that he leans back. And when we lean together, there is a connection of hearts. I would not have known the power of a bond had not the bond been broken between myself and my wife. I understand now what it means for us to be able to have the confidence, the security to say that we are connected to God, that we are secure in Christ, like we read when we very first started. That is the practicality of our faith. To look at these times and say, Father, what is your perspective? Talk to me. Tell me what your perspective is. And the perspective that I'm sharing with you is, press, you know what it is to be torn apart. You can never be separated from me. The bond that you and I share can never be torn. I got it, Father. I got it. And I would go home. I would go home. And the next night, I would go back. And I would fish until dark. And then I'd break my fly rod down, whistle to my dog, wander in the woods. And I would talk to my father and say, Father, talk to me about security. Talk to me about love. Talk to me about faithfulness. Talk to me about worth and value and significance. Tell me about the things that matter in life. And in that darkness, he shared with me the treasures, just like his word said. Where are your dark places? Talk to your father.
my little dog, Katie, at the time uh, to Basenji. Yay big, the barkless dog. Um, bred to hunt lions and uh, has a heart to go hunt a lion. I mean, an amazing breed. And uh, my, my uh, lion hunter dog weighed 30 pounds. One day my neighbor lady said to me, said, uh, did you know that your dog howls every morning when you leave for work? I said, no, I didn't know that. She said, yeah, every morning, after, right after you leave, she goes and says, I've, I've gone and looked. She sits right in the middle of the driveway and she howls. And I realized, you know what? My lion hunter dog is brokenhearted because her mistress is gone. And so that night, I took my dog um, and sat down on the couch and put her between my legs and set her down and I began to scratch her, her ears. And I began to talk to her. Her name was Katie May. And I said to her, Katie May, I know that you've been rejected. I know that your little heart is broken and that you realize that somebody important is gone. But I want you to know, I love you. You're my dog. And I will not leave you. And I swatted her on the butt. She went off. The next night, I brought her in, set her down between my legs, began to scratch her on the ears. Katie Mae, you're my dog. I know your little dog heart is broken. Somebody you love is gone. I love you. You're my dog. I will not leave you. Went on for several nights. And then one night, just as soon as I swatted her on the butt, the tables turned, and I heard my Heavenly Father say to me, Press, you're my son. I know your heart is broken. Someone you love is gone. But you're my son, and I will not leave you. That's part of the practicality of our Father. You listen. You take note of what's around you. You pay attention to what he's saying. If he takes note when every sparrow falls, surely he will take note to speak to you through your dog or your cat or your kids or your wife or whatever. That's part of who he is. It's part of the connection that we share, part of the bond that we have. What I discovered through all of this, was that my Heavenly Father was not in the infield when I was stuck in the left field bleachers. But he was in the left field bleachers too. That he came to me. He found me at my point of deepest need. And that's where he met me. And he stayed with me. And it was not a matter of me getting out of the left field bleachers and across the outfield to the infield under my own steam and my own resolve in order to find myself back into his good graces. But rather it was a great heart of grace that 
came to me at my point of need and in his grace said, I'm leaning toward you. Will you trust me? Will you lean back toward me? And in that bond then, in that connection point, that relationship, to walk with me on the journey, the destination simply being wherever he was headed. That's what I began to see through this process. I began to see that God was not my antagonist and my adversary. He wasn't El Gato. But he was the God that I could trust. He was my Heavenly Father. You know, uh, my neighbor has a cat named Gomer. I'm not much on cats. But... um, but he's got this cat named Gomer. It's no special cat. It's just a cat, you know, a gray striped tabby. And um, anyway, I took to the uh, habit of going out and sitting out front on the steps. And Gomer would come and he would sit down about, oh, 20 feet away from me or so. I tried everything I could to get Gomer to come to me, and Gomer wouldn't do it. Gomer didn't trust me. So Gomer kept his distance from me. But each night I would go and I would sit on the front steps and I would reach out to Gomer and I'd scratch in the grass and I'd try to hold my hand out so that Gomer could get a whiff of it. And each night Gomer sat a little closer and a little closer to my hand. And then finally one night as I was sitting on the steps and I was reaching out to Gomer, Gomer reached toward me and he smelled my knuckles and then he backed away and he stood and he looked at me a minute and then he came around behind me and I felt him he leaned against me he leaned against my back and then he came around the front and I pulled him close and I scratched him on the head and I kissed him on the head Gomer and I connected. Do you recognize the parallel? Do you see the story? God is reaching to us. He sits on the front steps all the time and he reaches out. He leans, waiting to see if we will trust, if we will lean, if we'll move close, if we'll just give him the benefit of the doubt. And if so, He'll pull us close. He'll whisper in our ear. He kisses us on the forehead. It's what it means to be blessed by God. For him to be personal in the story of our life. Father, I pray that you would take the things that we have discussed, these events out of my life, that somehow or another you would translate them into the lives of these folks who are here this evening that you would cross the bridges and build the, the connection points that are necessary for them to be able to generalize from my story to their story, that you will do whatever is necessary as you are wont to do to build that bond that is a heart bond founded in grace and trust from two people who love each other. In the name of Jesus, amen. 
This message was recorded at the Christ is Life Conference hosted by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know God deeper and disciple Christians on their journey to life and freedom that they may love others from their new pure heart by faith in Jesus Christ, living through them as a result of their union with Christ at the cross. For more information, upcoming events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.